But how long did you do these parties in that basement? For, for at least a year and a half. Before they came to the police said, I had, we had it, can't do this no more. Because it was too much. It was too big. It became too large. Where exactly you know? in Chicago is this? South side, east side, where is this? It was on the south side on a block called Constance. Constance Avenue. And I lived on Euclid, which is literally two blocks from that spot. Was that near Cabrini area? No, Cabrini is more northwest, like uh, Chicago Avenue. All right, so everybody, yeah, give we me everybody on... a sideline here. Ron's, when Ron and I worked in Chicago, Ron took me around, really took me around. And yeah, took me around yeah. where everything was, because I'm trying to visualize where this is. And, mm -hmm. and Oh, wow. So you were deep in Chicago, deep in the south side. In the, in the, in the hood, yes, sir. Yo, was it like was it like gun running craziness going on at that time? Like you know, well, I would say the guns were more on the east part. We were on the the western side of Seventy Third Street, so it was okay. I mean, you would run into a few things, but it wasn't that gun crazy over there. You had people that got beat up, of course, or you know, robbed. You feel me? But. Not that much killing at the time on that. Because that, that's the next question. I am shocked that nobody came up in there looking to get some payola from you guys. Now, here's the funny part, right? There were a lot of gangbangers who came. But for some reason, I'm, I'm this guy that I guess could talk to anybody. So the fact that I talked to the guys and said, listen, y'all can party here. We, we don't have a problem with you. Y'all family to us. But y'all, I want y'all to be the protection. So y'all come in, do what you want, but y'all security as well. Make sure nobody act up, you know, really, that type of thing. So they would basically run the smoke area. I think they was probably selling as well from there. But, you know, we just let people do what they do at the time because <laughs> they were security as well, bro. And this is why it's called the True House Story. I can guarantee you people never heard this before. I know. Hell no. Hell no. no. I've never heard <laughs> you a long I've never heard this part. I'm going, wow, this is real news to me. Fresh. Yeah, bro. Yeah, bro. Yeah. All right, take us on the road. So now cops bust you guys up. What happened? Cops bust us up. You know, we're done with it. So then my brother and I was like, okay, cool. We're gonna start doing a school party. So we we uh, started doing parties in the, the gym where we were set up. We just wanted to be the guys at our school. Now, at the time, the music box was open. <clears throat> the warehouse was open. I think it was a power plant was open at the time where Frankie was. And, of course, at the time, you know, we couldn't really go to those places. My My family was very religious, so, you know, we couldn't go out and party with the vagrants like that, you know, go to the club. So we want to create our own situation. We brought Ron Hardy to our school, which was South Shore High School. And when I tell you, Lenny, those people looked at Ron Hardy like he was a complete alien from another planet that they've never seen before. They didn't know who the guy was. My brother and I are running through the place. Y'all don't know who this is? 
It's this Ron Hardy. Are you crazy? They're like, hey, man, we don't know who this cat is. No. Who the hell's Ron Hardy? Exactly. That's how they told you. Who the hell, <laughs> who the hell brought Ron? And nobody knows who the hell Ron Hardy is. No, oh, they didn't know. I've seen they did, but not in your school. Okay. Not in my school. Because that area that I was in was really commercial many. So they were more they were more Farley, Hot Mix Five type of crowd over on that side of town. They weren't into the high part. See, this is what I've learned that my city is very segregated as far as knowledge of music and as far as like the way people dressed, how they interacted. Chicago is very segregated, bro, in such a way. It's hard to so believe that. It's hard to believe because I know that from going and hanging with everybody. However, yeah. I, say, oh, I only I only party on the north side with the Italians, and the other right. ones that I only party with the Puerto Rican dudes and the Mexicanos over here on the west side and the south side yeah. with the black thing. And you know, and and it's like in New York, we never saw it that way. True. You know, because you've played in New York and you hung out and worked. You know, yeah, it's like yeah. New York's a whole different yeah. machine. It's like a different. I mean, it's segregated, but not like in in within. It's like you telling me Manhattan would be like that segregated. Yes, <laughs> no, we're not like that bad. But go ahead, explain that part because people are probably going, "What does he mean by this?" Well, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King said it best. He said that Chicago is the most segregated city. He ever visited in his whole time of marching and doing rallies. He said Chicago is the most segregated place. And I think, you know, it just comes from our neighborhoods not being mixed as well. Like our neighborhoods are just those people. Blacks live here. Latins live here. Asians live here. I know. Uh, yeah, I it's, it's that. no mixture. It was like, yo, in fact, when we were all hanging out together, people would be looking at us like, that's <laughs> crazy. I never saw such craziness. Like in Chicago, I was like, yo, we're not in, yo, we're not in the South. This is Chicago. Not exactly. Chicago is like a big South. You right? know what I mean? Yeah. 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 As you guys call them, the Italians. You're right, the, the Italians. Three, yo, <laughs> people, in, check this out, they have the highest amount of population of Mexicans and Greeks mm -hmm. in Chicago, more than anywhere else. I don't know. Yes. And they're all, and Ron used to tell me, yo, man, we got to go to Greek town, or we got to go to, you know, where the Italians are. You're right. I'm like, what? <laughs> well, you'll you'll see what I mean when we go there. I'm gonna take you some yeah. food down over here. I'm like, okay, all right. Yes, bro. Uh, and you know, lady, you you're due back. You're due for a return. We are gonna get on that later on in the show. You really? But well, we you definitely do for a return, my brother. Um, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> <laughs> so no, keep on. All right, this is because people are really interested in this now. So, so he's so going and, and you're bringing DJs, Ron Hardy. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, we had, we had Ron Hardy, uh, at South shore. Didn't nobody understand it. So it was like, okay, the party went, but it just, what it did was it inspired me 
to want to be more than just a DJ. So I want to DJ, but I also want to be an event promoter. Like I had a love for like bringing people together to hear the music, you know, to excite them, that type of thing. Now, I'm going to say this, Lenny. Chicago had a lot of promoters during the late 80s through the 90s. Oh, yeah. There were a lot of promotional groups. Now, these promotional groups were really family units. Like, they operated almost like gangs, bro. You know, they had their jackets with their logos. They all hung out together. They went to breakfast together, to different events together. And at the time, Lenny, I couldn't connect with nobody. Like, nobody wanted to give me an opportunity to be a part of their, you know, their clique or their circle. So with this being the case, I said, well, nobody wants to mess with me, so I'm going to be a loner. I'm going to do it on my own. So during the college years, there was a place called AKAs. It was on the north side of Chicago on Broadway. I loved it because they had a college night. The college night was on Wednesdays. I went to the owners. Their name were Art and Whaling, two Asian dudes, okay? I went to them. I said, look, I want to do your Wednesday nights. For some reason, I didn't have to audition or anything. He said, okay, do our Wednesday nights. And at the time, I had a partner by the name of Marcus Mix, who we were working together. But, bro, here's where it got tricky. We used to hang up poster boards for promotion. We passed out flyers, and we used to hang posters on poles with the wire, okay? Mm -hmm. There was a place that we ordered the posters from called Tribune Showprint. It was in Indiana, and they used to mail the posters, 500, 1,000, how many of you ordered? And people would go get wire from this guy named DeAndre Sanders, to put into the poster boards. Now, mind you, Ron is broke. Ron doesn't have the money to get the wire and the poster board. So I ordered a poster board, right, for AKAs. Now, nobody really still knows me, Lenny. So I'm like, okay, I got to introduce myself to the city again. You know, the high school days is over. I got to go on a new, you know, a new adventure. So I ordered these posters with the last bit of money I have. And it says, real big, Ron Carroll, a.k.a. and the date. Like, boom, take that, right? So I go into mode. I said, uh, Ron, A, you have 500 posters here. You have no wire and no car. <laughs> right. So what do we do now? What do we do now? So I'm like, okay. I asked the guy DeAndre, I said, look, man, can you give me a discount on a wire? He like he used to call me Ronnie. No, Ronnie, you know, I can't, I can't do that. You know, I gotta make this money, Ronnie. I gotta make the money. I said, all right, whatever, bro, whatever. So I used to take the posters, bro. No, no lie. This is the dead of winter. Take the posters. Steal a shopping cart from 
the supermarket. Okay. Put the posters into the, the you know, the, uh, the shopping cart and roll around for miles, poking holes with a Phillips screwdriver and taking the old wire off, putting in the posters and putting the poster up. No, I what? did that for years. So you were into recycling. I was recycling. You were recycling. So you were taking somebody else's poster board. <laughs> no, somebody else's wire. Somebody else's wire from their poster. And put yes. Oh, <laughs> my poster. Now, mind you, the city would at a certain point tear the posters down. Okay. But the wires would still be wrapped around the poles, rusted out, like really rusty wires. So I would just unloosen the wire, the rusty wire, and put it through my poster and hang right, it so up. You hang it so you can hang it up on the on the. How many years? You, how many years you did this? I did that for at least about three years, bro. That's called dedication. That's called yeah. dedication. Yes, dedication. In the dead of winter during the summer, uh, and I'm talking about walking four miles, like 10, 20 miles, putting those posters up. Now, here's the part that's crazy. Because I was a loner, Lenny, and because everybody had cliques and groups with jackets and cars, by the time I get to my last stop, all the other posters were torn down because they were throwing parties, and they would tear mine down to put theirs up. Okay. And now I'm going to segue. I'm going to segue into the Chicago moment of life. It was called the Poster Wars. <laughs> Everyone knows what that is. <laughs> poster Wars begin with the. It's like a mafia thing. Go ahead. Yes, it is. So now we get into the Poster Wars, and of course, if you had a click, you kind of. You know, you had your boys, you, you know, you had your back. And I remember this so clear. So it was going around that I was the one taking down everybody's posters because I was the loner. Okay. Oh, it's not us. It's Ron. One crew would be like, no, it's that Ron dude. It ain't us. But they the ones doing it. But they would blame it on me when they get questioned. So it was this group called the Chicago Bad Boys, which consisted of Armando, may he rest in peace. And the Confusion Armando, uh, Steve, right? That Armando, right? Yeah, Atlanta Confusion Armando. Yeah, Atlanta Confusion. Wow, I haven't heard his name in a long time. May he rest in peace. Armando, go ahead. Yeah, man. And it was Steve Poindexter. It was, um, and the other guys, what well, other guys, you wouldn't know their names. So I'm just going, the two main ones was Armando and Steve Poindexter. Um, so I remember going to a place called the Powerhouse on 22nd and Michigan. Okay, that's they call it the South Loop now. Everything's bougie. It's the South Loop, but back then it was just a ghetto area on 22nd and Michigan. That's right. Going to you just say I'm going to that spot. Exactly. So I walk in, and there was a big lobby area. Then. The dance floor was through these door through this area. So I'm in the lobby area. These two said, they go Ron. I hear them. They go Ron. Do you know that every member of the bad boys, and I think it had to be 
at the time, like 15, I think, 12 or 15 people. They all surrounded me in the lobby, bro. Like I was in the middle of the circle, bro. And I'm looking around and I'm like, what's going on? And Armando said, yo, you've been tearing down our posters, bro. And I'm like, and by, by that time, I've been knowing people saying it's me. And I was so angry. I said, I started shouting. I'm like, it's not me. I'm not doing it. They was like, no, everybody says you're doing it. You're doing it. I said, it's not me. I wish I would stop this. So Armando came up to swing at me. So I grabbed Armando's arm and I slammed him against the door that you know that you go in and out. So I slammed him. Boom. When I slammed him, I don't know why I did that, lady. You know, once I slammed Armando against that door, all 12 to 15 just started beating the crap out of me, bro. Oh, man. I mean, I was getting stomped out, dude, like you wouldn't believe. And then they they actually, everybody was watching it. They was, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then they they threw me out the door. So I, they pushed me out the door. I fell on the ground. And I remember there, and it was like, we going to make sure you don't get in a no party in the city. I'm like, damn. And so I'm I'm getting off the ground. You have some people laughing and stuff. Of course, you know, we kids. And um, so then I, you know, I had a little little dusty car. My brother gave me. So I got back in the car and I took off. A week later, Lil Lewis had a crew called the Diamond Corp. The Diamond Corp was him, his uh, cousins, brother, a couple of other people, and they had big parties in the city as well. And they had a party, and I said, Well. I'm going to go to the Diamond Court party. I may not be able to go to the Chicago Bad Boys parties, but I'm going to go to the Diamond Court party. Dude, why did I walk in a Diamond Court party? <laughs> and the same thing happened to me at the Diamond Court party. They go wrong. The one tearing down the posters. Get him. Get him. Dude, the guy, this one guy, Tim, which, you know, that's my brother now. All of my brothers, you know. But that was a young part of our life then. And so uh, I walk in, and Tim comes over to me. And I'm like, hey, Tim. And before I can get Tim out of my mouth, he already even slugged me. Boom. Oh. I hit the ground. They started stomping me out on the ground. Boom, 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 stomping me out. And I got thrown out of there. And the thing is, though, Lenny, I still didn't want to give up. The key to it, I still felt I had something to do, to prove. Even through that, I said, I'm not giving up. I'm going to make this right, and I'm not going to give up. Crazy, bro. And those were the postal wars. There's more stories to it, but I mean, we just on the postal wars alone, it, it could be hours, bro. I'll tell you something. Chicago's got this, this, this war tactic thing that goes on. Oh, yeah, bro. It's not just like, let's just destroy the party. Let's go (laughs) kick the shit out of the people who made the party. Yeah. 
It's like they, told, they want blood in that place. It's like, what's up with Dude, that? I told you, they, the, the crews were like gangs. You know what I'm saying? They were like family, like gang units. You know, they had their look, they the jackets. They were a crew, you know, and that's that's how it was back in the young days. Man. Yo, it's like everybody keeps writing. The war posters are real. Yeah, bro. People are really real. They're like they're real. <clears throat> So it's a good yeah. Chicago history lesson. This is this is post after the thought of, of course, you had one of the biggest mafia men in the world in Chicago. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the original Scarface himself, Al Capone. So you could see that kind of militant yeah. style operation was at every level there, no matter what yes, you sir. Yes, brother. Definitely that. So Definitely. so so the so you, bro, you must you must be like at that point, like feeling the lowest ever. Oh yeah, I mean, once I get blackballed uh, from Black going ball. out, blackballed. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't go for for at least about a year and a couple of months. I I couldn't go out nowhere. Oh, I would have been attacked, like on site, you know, and. Um, you know, the the crazy part about it was is that I cried like a baby. I'm like, I didn't do anything to these people, and they're blaming me for everything. And, of course, at the time, you know, I got brothers. So I went to my brother, and I told him, and they said, and I never had support for my family during that time either, really. It was kind of like, oh, you shouldn't be doing it anyway. It's a waste of your life. And, you know, so those things happening, it's just proof that you shouldn't do it and, and everything. And my brother, who was DJing with me at the time, you know, he got saved and became a Christian. So he stopped the DJing thing. But I kept going with it. And so him and my father were like straight tag team on me all the time. Oh, we shouldn't be around those people. You shouldn't be doing it. So I never really had not only friends support. I didn't even have family support. So I was like a loner for real in every aspect. Well, let's be real. You were what we call the true black sheep of the family. Now you got them finding Jesus and you are playing hedonistic. (laughs) (laughs) You are you are what we call the wrong in their (laughs) eyes. You know, and that's that's crazy. Like, it's um, not, and it's not crazy because I understand it. I had other friends that happened to in New York. You play that wow. worship music. Meanwhile, what the devil worship music it was beautiful. No, man, it's beautiful, right? It's beautiful. No, but wait a second. Didn't you guys have a black mafia too that ran Chicago in the club scene? Yeah, we. That was uh, you had a lot of those, but it was more so on the southwest end of the city. Um, where those guys were really like gang affiliated. Uh, there was a place back in the day called the Fort, which was um, the um, I don't want to get the gang wrong because you know you say the wrong gang name on a on the podcast they they get me for points. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, no, was, they were called the L Rookins. L Rookins. The L Rookins, and they had a place called uh, uh, that was on Thirty Ninth Street. And they, it was a fort, but that's where they held their meetings and things like that. What people don't know about gangs is that they were really organized. I mean, for the neighborhood, you know, they would 
feed the block, get food, do a lot of different things. Um, but they had parties in the place called the fort. So it was it was a lot of uh, different situations going on in the city for sure. So now hang on, so everybody got to understand. I'm going to ask the next question. It's very important. Did you have a cup for mm. those? You know what I'm talking about? That cup, that that uh, those special balls. Because I know you played them later, but you know, yeah. you know the pimp balls where they come with their cups and their special. Oh, yeah. How do you know for that? <laughs> but that's later. So keep us. Yeah. So now, how? What the hell happened to you? You mean to tell me you got blackballed from everybody? Yeah. Well, all the major parties, um, they had blackballed me. I couldn't go, or I was going to get attacked. Um, you already did so, get attacked three times already. Yeah, but you know, it was a fear at that point. You know, it's like, okay, I'm not going to go out because stay the hell home. So gonna, yeah, stay the hell home. And from that point, but I was still, and it's weird, Lenny, because I'm still trying to figure out a way to get my message heard. Even through that, even through everybody saying you show up, you know, we're going to beat your ass, bro. We're going to be dead, bro. You're going to be dead. You come up with this. Exactly. So, but I'm still trying to figure out a way to do my own thing. And, And that drive just never left me. So, after the wars went away, I then went into production and writing and vocal type things. So at the time, you know, of course, Tracks and DJ International, I used to go by those sessions a lot. Uh, not really involved in writing at the time, but just going to hang out, okay? So, of course, there were offshoot labels that started to form after those labels were out. So, After Hours, Clubhouse, uh, Casual, all those labels began to form. So, I got together with a brother named Big Ed, okay? All right. Big Ed is, is an incredible writer, and and also a poet, you know what I mean? He writes in a very poetic type way. And um, me and him connected on the production tip and the writing thing. So me and him wanted to, you know, put out tracks and put out songs. And, of course, you know, the way he convinced me was him and Ron Trent um, were doing some things at the time. And they had a track. And he was like, Ron, we want you to sing it. Now, I was fully in church at the time, you know. I guess fulfilling my dad's dream. I was in a choir and doing all of that type of stuff, right? So he was like, so I was like, man, I can't, I can't sing on house music, bro. Like that's a sin. You know, I can't sing on it. It's sinful. He was like, no, but you can sing about God on a house track. I said, really? You think I can? Yeah. So I went to my dad. I said, dad. My guys want me to sing on a house track, you know, but I can sing about God, though. Dad said, you're not going to put your voice <laughs> I knew that was on coming. that mess. I knew he was coming with that. <laughs> I knew he was coming with that. And, but Big Ed is saying, yo, man, you could do it, man. 
Because I remember how he speaks. Yeah, bro. You could do it. Yeah. You can make this. <laughs> you can be the one that brings it from the one side to the other. Right, everybody? Come on, everybody. You know how they yeah. you know Ed Matthews know how he talks. Come on. Yes, Come bro. On, Ron. Yes, bro. You can do it, Ron. And you're like, <laughs> no. So I'm yeah, I'm sitting there like, man. So finally him and Ron Trent convinced me. And that's when my prayer was born. And, uh, and you could hear the applause too from the audience. If they were all here, they were all applauded to you, with you. And then you said that as a beautiful moment. Uh, oh, that's what's up. Uh, my prayer was born. And I was nervous. I didn't like, I didn't want my dad to see the record. Like, hey man, just, and during that time, it wasn't about the feature thing. It was just if you're the artist, you were the artist. Your your name went on the record as the artist, and they were on there as producer and uh, and writer. And Ed had, Ed had wrote the song. Okay. Ed had wrote several songs for me uh, during that tenure. So Ed wrote my prayer. Ed wrote a new day. Ed wrote Pressing On, and I did. And there was a B-side of Pressing On called All Around Me, mm -hmm. which is one of those, uh, I call it a cult classic because a lot of DJs were like, yo, that B-side of Pressing On, bro, that All Around Me, that was my joint, okay? And so that was just me and Hula uh, in the studio playing around, and I always had this, this love for, like, Frank Sinatra in a way, that that type of sound that big band sound so i kind of just was playing around with the voice and you know pretending like i'm frankie sinatra uh on a house track and that's how all around me was uh was born as well so me and ed, ed wrote those tracks for me and then we started writing together this is when i went to the winter music conference for the first time in the early days Mm -hmm. I said Miami, now, everybody knows. Have never been to WMC. He's talking about they would do it around March every year down in Miami, mm -hmm. down at the Fountain Blue Hilton Hotel. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And so now so I'm now, like, I'm there. Big Ed couldn't make it, but I was there. And there was a pool party at the Fountain Blue. And, and Lenny, you're going to laugh at this. This is when I first saw Gladys Pizarro. Now, check this out. I saw Gladys Pizarro when I first walked in the back, coming out of the pool with a bikini on, with her hair wet and everything. It was all shorts. And listen, I don't know why, Lenny, I fell in love with Gladys Pizarro. I said, I don't know who that is, but I'm in love, right? <laughs> And they said, Ron, that's Gladys Pizarro from Strictly Rhythm, bro. I said, oh, for real? So yeah. I said, okay, okay. So I'm nervous. I go back there. Louie's there, Barbara, India, Kenny, Dave, uh, Dave um, what's my boy Dave from Columbia at the time? Dave German. Dave, Dave German. They're all back there. So me and Ed wanted to work with 
Louis Vega. Bad. So I called Ed on the payphone. I said, Ed, everybody's back here, bro. Everybody's here. He said, what you going to do? I said, I'm going to go straight up to Louie, and I'm just going to tell Louie, we want to work with you. And if he say no, he just say no, and that's it. Now, at the time, Lenny, Beautiful People was the biggest record of WMC. They was playing Beautiful People like crazy, okay? I got off the phone with Ed. I walked through, through the crowd. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Louie, I know you don't know me. I love your work. My name is Ron Carroll, and I'm a writer, and I want to write for you. Now, here's the part that's weird. Louie looked at me. He paused. And he said, okay. Write the next Barbara Tucker. Tucker. Just, Just like, that. like that. I'm like, uh, uh, go ahead. You mean the famous Barbara Tucker, like right here with the beautiful people? Her? Yeah. Right so far. I said, oh, snap. So he said, when I get home, after winning this conference, we're going to send you the track and see what y'all come up with. Now, bro, come on, man. I left from the back of Fountain Blue, like nervous. I called Ed. I'm like, dude, he's going to let us write something for Barbara Tuck. He said, what? I no, said, yeah. man, you talking Jack. He's probably telling you. Talking. <laughs> he, he, he leaving that out. Man, you didn't talk to Louis. Why are you bugging, bro? Get out of here. That's how I know how it is. Go ahead. So. Yeah, true. He, he did it right. He didn't believe me at first. For sure. Man, I'm going to hang this phone up on you. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, go ahead. No, man. <laughs> I'm serious. So, yeah, I'm like, I'm serious, bro. For real? For real? He's like, for real? Like, yeah, man. Yeah, we're going to do it. I'm telling you. So we waited. And guess what? We received the cassette in the mail. We put it in the full track machine. Yeah, people don't know how we used to track back then. It's so many conversations, like talking about gear and all of that. But it was a it was a four track machine. Okay. We put the tape in and we heard the track. And immediately we started to work on it. Hence, I get lifted was born. I get lifted. And that became her second. I get lifted. Yeah. Oh, man. Everybody loved that record. Yeah. I get lifted every time. Yeah. That was that was me and Big Ed. And I remember when um, Louis was doing a session, and he was like, dude, we're done with it. We're done. Then he did the dubs. And the dubs is what killed it for me. Oh, well, 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 yes. Oh, well, 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 well. That right there, lady. Uh, yes. <laughs> and Gladys told yeah. me, Gladys told me that was always like the duck, the duck mix. She said, she heard that. Wah, 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 wah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a hot, hot duck, man. <laughs> Woo! Masses at work. Oh my god, that, that dub was serious, bro. 
I mean, incredible. So we heard that. We we was we were blown. Mine was blown. Like, oh wow. And at the time, I reckon a new day was coming out. And I remember this vividly. We were asked to come perform. Now, see, even as a performer, Lenny, it's a difference with performing in Chicago than New York. New York, when we performed at the Sound, was it the Sound Factory Bar? That's right. Sound Factory Bar on a Wednesday night, everybody. New York City. Listen, <clears throat> that was a party, my friend. If I, the Sound Factory Bar on a Wednesday night was the party, period, for me. And I remember they had a showcase, and it wasn't there, but I had to perform a new day because Louie was playing a new day. So Ed and I got. On the plane, Barbara Tucker brought us there. We flew into New York. And I'm going to tell you something, Lenny. This is the funniest thing. I left my belt at home. My belt. Okay. Regular regular belt. Hold your pants up. Mm. I'm so frank that we covered to New York. I left my belt. Brother, when the performance happened, I'm, I, I froze. I like. I saw the guy before me, and he was some I don't know Indian dude. Like he was just hopping around, and everybody was clapping. And I don't know who that guy was, bro. I can't remember who that guy was, but he was just hopping around, and, and he couldn't hardly sing. But everybody was like whistling. I said, "Damn, they like him." I got up there trying to be all church, a new day, you know, put my, I put my arms up in the air at the end, like I was in Broadway <laughs> and my shirt lifted up. Lady, listen, bro. My shirt lifted up. All you saw was a little stomach hanging and an extension cord tied up to hold my pants up. <laughs> When I tell you it was silence on the floor. <laughs> the song. <laughs> I'm sorry, don't be laugh, everybody. Because I was there that night when that happened. I could just, I just I remember talking about it. I was off to the side of the stage. I remember going, what the hell is going on now? <laughs> oh, my goodness, bro. Oh. Wardrobe malfunction happening right now here. Bro, I promise you, I was so embarrassed, dude. I got on the stage. I went, I don't know, I went in the corner. I forgot where I went, but I want to be far away from everybody, <laughs> dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that happened. But out the trip, it was good because we went to the studio. We met India in person. Uh, I think um, Donnell Jones was there. Donnell R- Rush, Donnell. one of those guys. Donnell Rush was there. So we met a lot of great, great people. And <clears throat> but I sucked on stage, terrible. But I'm gonna tell you something. I learned how to perform by watching Barbara Tucker. I can say that for sure. 
I learned how to tighten up my skills as far as keeping people excited by watching Barbara Tucker. Okay. Now, I got so many stories, Lenny. I just, I'm trying not to jumble them up, but it's just difficult. It's all right. We'll keep it so, going. It's great. It's, keep going. You're doing great. It's so many levels. Like, music history right here. It's all historical. It's no matter how you lay it out, it shows the admiration, the respect, the, you know, that you are showing that you will overcome whatever's thrown at you. And that's oh, what makes man. a great story. I mean, this is such a great story. I'm enjoying every moment of it. Bro, I tell you, when it came to writing, you know, me and Ed wrote a lot of things together, and then we kind of slowed down um, our relationship on that level. Uh, and then I was working with Mike Dunn and Byron Stingley. Now, it was funny because Mike Dunn and I started working together first. And um, he lived in these nice apartments on King Drive, one of our major uh, roads. And I used to go to his house and try to, you know, create tracks with him. And then we would come up with ideas. We did a couple of songs together that came out, like uh, He's Gonna Make It All Right, which is one of them that came out on Suburban Records, uh, where he's kind of preaching in his voice and I'm singing in the background, uh, which is a good one, Gospel House. Mm -hmm. And then Byron Steely came into the fold where he linked up with Byron and they kept me around because I thought once Byron came, I was done. I'm like, dude, that's Byron Stingley. You know what I mean? Like I, I knew for a fact, like I'm you about to kick me to the curb. You get Byron. But but Byron uh wanted to keep me a part of it and I appreciate him for that. And uh Byron was like, No, he says, You're good at what you do, but we're gonna just make it better. We're gonna tighten up your skills. So I learned how to write and arrange and put songs in a certain order through being tutored by Byron Stingley. I would say this, Byron took me back to New York with him. And this is how it started. He was signed to Nervous as a solo artist. And they said, hey man, you gotta come to New York to write and work with producers. He called me at the crib. I was like, yo, B, what's up? He was like, hey, man, what are you up to, you know, for the next, I guess, week? I said, well, I'm not really doing much. He said, okay, I'm about to come grab you, and we're going to New York. Just like that. Not next week. I'm about to come there in a few hours to pick you up, and we're driving. Hey, hey, man. Right. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> That's the phone call I get, too. Yo, what are you, what are you doing? Right. Uh, right now, um, um, I'm right now in the show. Oh, 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 oh. I'm about ready to come through. <laughs> yeah. Like, come on, yeah, bro. Just come on through, <laughs> B. That's family. That's what we call house family. That's the realness. Yes, absolutely. Byron's one of those guys. And, you know, he, Byron's a beautiful spirit. So he was like, yo, we going to New York. So we drove to New York. 18 hours there. later. 18, yeah, hours, 18 later. hours later. We drive to New York. Uh, we go straight. And we didn't go to the hotel. We went straight 
to Nervous Records office. Oh, okay. we got there. You know, I said when he he was in a room with uh with Mike. I was waiting out there. You know, in, in the waiting the waiting part with everybody else. And then uh, we got checked in. And listen, through Byron, bro, um, I was able to work with Frankie Knuckles, Mark Kitchen, Carrie Chandler. Uh, and I learned how to really vocal produce from a guy named Danny Madding. Danny Madden. You remember, Madden, Danny. you remember Danny Madden? Sure. He came and worked at my studio. Yeah. He'd done vocal ranges for Ultra, vocal ranges for many, many, many of our house luminaries. Bro. Great vocal. I was, yes. I was so blown away by him because, you know, we had a week that we worked. But when I was in a session with Frankie, I was watching him and I said, wow. They really do it big in New York. They really have vocal guys in there, you know? Well, that's what E. Smooth said, too. He's like, when he said, when he went to Masters at Work bass hit recording, he said the same exact thing. He said, man, you guys got engineers, vocal production people. We got ourselves in Chicago doing everything. Like, one-man operation type work. So, I understand that. Back then, we had budgets like that to do those type of things. It was a lot That's of records. That's crazy. Man. You remember? You remember what it was like? It was like when I remember when we talked about it. Oh, oh yeah, crazy back then. I mean, it was incredible. Like, and I just watched him in awe, and I learned from him. You know, that's the one thing you got to do. You got to learn from your situations. You know. And so I learned from that dude. Like I watched him, how he did vocal arranging, how he did melodies and everything. Bro, like the guy was incredible. And so working with all those people through Byron was a blessing, bro. A beautiful blessing. And being in the studio, we kind of we moved to a studio building, which was on uh, the street called Kinsey. And then all of a sudden, I met Maurice Joshua. Well, Maurice, I knew I knew of Maurice, but never fully met him until he built the studio right next door to ours. Oh yeah. Oh Mo. Oh Mo. Oh yeah, I know. So, Go ahead. Bring us right to that top. So, so Maurice heard that I, you know, that I could write and all of that as well. And so Maurice also had a very a uh, big part of my my life and my career because went through him, you know, he was like, yo, because he was the remix king, right? He did a lot of remixes, but the way he did it was they redid the melody on a lot of R&B singers' tunes. So he would always let me hear the original and say, well, how can we put the melody in a house type of format? And through him, I I never forget. We went to New York. He didn't tell me what was going on. I just, we were in a car. We got to go to a studio session. I met Selena Johnson. She just got signed to Jive Records at the time. And then we went to the studio. Now, we sitting out in front. This limousine pulls up, right? Like, Who's in a limousine? Who's this? He said, this is the people we working with for our session. I said okay and they get out the car bro 
in his destiny's child. So, wait, so like, limousine pulls up. Mo, you're in Mo's car, got the heat on. It's probably winter, and you're like, "Yo, who's who we working with?" He's, he's and I know how Mo. He's probably, he's probably like, you're gonna, you're gonna see, "Yo, man, you're gonna see in a second. Just just sit tight. Just wait. Right in your wait. They're going. Just, just wait. Just, just sit tight. wait. Just and I, we know. And Lenny, I'm glad. I'm glad you're doing the voices and everything because I'm in a doctor's clinic. So I can't be as animated as I want to be. So I know we really want that animation. We want because I can, I know the players you're hanging with because we've all hang, hung tight with everybody. Yo, man, yeah. just wait, sit tight, brother. I can hear Mo. Or sit tight, just, right? yeah. Just sit tight. Wait, like a big, like a big surprise is coming. Like, yo, what, what, what? Yes, bro. Yes, bro. So they come. They they pull up. They get out the car. Jesse's child. And we're talking about the full four girls, you know, when they were right in that Bills, Bills, Bills uh, starting phase, you know. And uh, was mother, I was, was like, what? Was their father with them or their mother was it? Because I remember they were managing them at that time, right? No, the father was with them. Yeah, the father was with them. Um, it was the father and also a lady with short hair who was like their, I don't know, road manager or something like that. Okay. She was there. And I remember going in the studio and I'm sitting there like, wow. Beyonce is getting in the booth and we're, we're going, you know, I'm, I'm giving her points. Seeing this like that, you know, put this there. And she's doing it. And Kelly is sitting at the control board right next to me. And the other two girls were sitting on a couch in front of the mixing console, combing little doll's hair. They didn't do anything. They were just combing the doll's hair. Latoya Luckett and somebody else. Okay. So it just blew me away that I was sitting there with them. And they remember me to this day because Maurice Joshua had a pet name for me called Peaches. He used to call me Peaches, bro. <laughs> I know what the hell. <laughs> hey, Peaches, come on over here. Dude, and it started at the studio when we were all well, together because, there. Because, wait a second. Everybody knows this Facebook thing, how all you all break on each other all day long. I was watching oh, yeah. for a while before COVID. He'd be, like, he'd be writing something and then he'd respond back. And that's just the way it's a camaraderie of things. And that's why I'm laughing. Yes. Peaches. Okay, Peaches. Yeah, right. dude. He, he called me Peaches. So he was calling me Peaches while we were there uh, <laughs> through the whole session. So Kelly Rowland and Beyonce was calling me Peaches, right? Uh, and so later on when I would see them like in L.A., for uh, these parties, they're like peaches. I'm like, oh lord, oh, not peaches. Everybody, everybody wants to know. Everybody wants to know why. Why would they call you peaches? Listen, those who are listening right now, watching my steel photo right now, which I wish you could see me. Uh, but the name peaches, he he gave it to me because I believe. Now he, hopefully, he'll be able to answer this online. But I think it's because I had a very soft way of talking. And it just was funny to him. Like, I never was loud. And I was always like, yeah, da 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 da, da real soft. And he's like, you know what? 
you smooth as peaches. You know what I mean? Like some peaches. Like, I don't know why he just called me Pam Peaches. So, That's how Maurice just, is. He comes up names for every and that well, let me tell you, everyone. If if he nicknames you, he likes you. Oh yeah. He don't nickname you, he don't like you. So we don't have- <laughs> That's a fact, bro. That's a fact. I know how that rolls, but that's cool. That's really cool. I, I, I so did, were you at Platinum Island recording? Do you remember where you were in New York? What what studio you went into? I know the studio building was on a corner, Lenny. It was on a corner in Brooklyn. Oh, in Brooklyn. Okay. Um, and I don't remember the name of it, but it was right on the corner. <laughs> Somebody just was really funny. Well, my name is Peaches, and I'm the best, and that comes from coming to <laughs> Thank you for that, everybody. That was really cool. That's really cool. Okay, so, so now he got the cover. He probably watched Coming to America that night and said, I <laughs> He probably did, though. So, all right, so you did the session, and you actually, what song was that? that you were working on with them, that, that he was revoked, you had them revocal? We were revocaling uh, Bills, Bills, Bills. Okay. For a house version. And I remember Maurice talking about that, that he wanted to do that with the R&B acts, create something yeah. brand new. That was the plan. Yes. And you were that. was definitely that. the plan. Okay. And Maurice, you know, Maurice, those guys, man, they really, really, they took me in. You know, at the time, you know, I thought they was, you know, I was the, the butt of their jokes, you know, all the time. Uh, but when you look back at it, when you look at it in totality, bro, uh, they were very instrumental in a lot of what I know now. You know, and I couldn't have been where I am without those guys at those moments, bro. Sowing seed into my life, period, on all levels. Well, they mm-hmm. were trendsetters. They were they were writing the story, the real story, as they were living it. For sure, for sure, that's for sure. And uh, so I thank those guys, man. And and moving on from there, um, just began to uh, and you know, in my life, Lenny, it was very up and down. You know, moments where it's beautiful. And there are moments where it was like, I can't do this anymore. You know, it's very like, like that. Um, an emotional roller coaster. Because during those young times, Lenny, I struggled with just loving myself. You know what I mean? And this is the part that I just want to teach the people through your show is that I had a moment where I didn't, I was like, man. I thought I was the most ugliest thing in the world, you know, always struggling with the weight, not being, uh, not having that, that, that true self-esteem uh, built. It was real loose. It was very, you know, it, it was no power to it. I didn't walk in my power. I didn't know who I was. And a lot of situations that I probably could have enjoyed, I did not because of that type of mindset. And I just want to tell people that's listening, like, you're going to have moments where you're not going to feel 100% or you're not going to know yourself. And it could be in moments where you're the most busiest 
in your life and you'll look back and regret those moments. Like, I'm not going to lie. Lenny, I look back at a lot of moments like, damn, Ryan, you could have enjoyed this part of your life. You could have enjoyed that part of your life. But you were so in your own head that you did You couldn't enjoy it. You couldn't see uh, the greatness out of it. You couldn't see the glory out of it, you know? And I'm only seeing this later on in life because I was a person, like I said, I didn't have no backing, no friends, no family. So how, how your young life is, it affects your adult life. It affects you greatly. And you think nobody truly has your back, even when they might. Like Byron, like Mike, like Maurice, those guys looked out for me in many ways, but I didn't see it in its totality, you know, because I'm looking at the jokes that surrounded it. You know, when you're sensitive about some stuff, you're looking more at what's being joked at as far as the entire picture, you know. They liked me. They loved me as a brother. I didn't fully see it during those times because of my sensitivity. You know what I mean? No, so you went I just want to. You went through a lot. You went through a lot at that time. Oh my goodness, bro! Like the emotional roller coasters that I've gone through over life. Period. With family, people that I thought were friends people that, uh, you know, just loved ones in general was crazy, bro. Um, many times I thought about taking myself out the game. And I'm not talking about out the game. I'm talking about out the earth game. You know what I mean? There were plenty of times I was like, I'm not needed here. I'm not. So, so, so let me understand this from a um, psychological sense. Um. You're talking about depression really hitting rock bottom. Oh. Because that's what you have to clarify. Because people see yeah. you as, hey, Ron, the happy guy, like me, we're always happy. Yeah. <laughs> you know that. We're always laughing and we're joking. Yeah. But let's be real. That's not all the time. No, 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 no. It's not. And um, I'll, I'll say this to you guys. There were moments where, and this I'm talking about for years, that I was very depressed, felt alone all the time. And that's why, but I'm going to let everybody know on here, it is so important, even for those who have children, teach your children how to be strong now. Don't let this world beat up on them. And just try to let them figure it out. It could affect their life for many, many years. You got to get a hold of it when they're young and teach them. Because I wasn't taught that. I wasn't taught to love yourself. I wasn't taught to uh, look out for yourself. I didn't have uh, a brotherhood with my brother at that moment. Me and my brother are great now, but at that time, I didn't have that supportive brother. I didn't have that supportive father. You know, I didn't have that supportive mom only because she was an old school mom. She didn't want to make her husband and fight with him. So she stayed neutral in the game. But you don't want that. 
in your life. You want to give your child back in whatever their dream is, whatever it may be, you know, and let them realize that maybe this won't be a reality for me. But don't just tell them you're not going to do it. It's not going to work. That sticks and that can affect you in other decisions like it did me. So that's just a little, uh, you know, announcement in that middle section. That's beautiful. That's beautiful that you actually, you shared that with us. Um, I'm, I'm floored because I didn't realize it was that bad. And then again, again, unless you really cry out and have those heart to hearts, you don't really know. Because we've had a lot of people around us that, you know, they're telling, hey, man, how you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Meanwhile, they're not good. Yeah, exactly. They're not good. How did you? Okay, so on a serious note. Yeah. You either this is the roller coaster of life, the ups and downs. So how do we Mm -hmm. stop that? Because you could have started drinking and drugging. Yeah. And went down that horrible road like Chris Farley did from Saturday Night Live, John Belushi. Yeah. They you read their stories, Marvin Gaye. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the end his father kills him, but he had a heavy drug problem because of all the stuff he was dealing with. How do you how do you pick yourself back up and say, I need to get past this? I need to work through it. What did what did you do? Well, here's here's what you have to realize. All depression, a lot of it. I, I would say, for me, in the in the music business, I can't speak on everyone's life, but on mine, um, I had to let go of the obsession with wanting music to make me who I am. I was reliant upon the industry, the people in the industry, to be my brother, to be my supportive dad, to be my supportive mom. You see, once you have the lack in your younger years, you're trying to find it throughout your adult life. And this is how you put a lot of pressure on other people. It's like, yo, I'm just your friend. What is all this pressure coming from? And they understand it's not it's stemming from the lack thereof that you received as a child. You're still trying to find that brotherhood, that sisterhood. You're still not going into yourself to find the strength. You're trying to get it from other people. You see what I mean? Yeah. So I had to learn that. You have to find the strength within. And once you find the strength within, let go of the obsession and let go of the ego of wanting and just do it because it flows naturally in you. But that takes time. Some people don't ever get to that point and they wrestle with it their whole life. I just happened to begin a spiritual journey that took me away from the scene for a little bit. And now I'm in balance with it. So now every moment of my life is enjoyed. You know, there's no uh, expectation from people. There's no expectation from things. 
It's just when I'm like this moment here, I'm going to enjoy this moment. But once this moment is done, it's done. And I move on to the next part of my life, you know, and that's how I look at it in sections. Well, especially now with this situation with COVID, we really learned from all the brothers and sisters that have passed that life yeah. is very short. The time we have is a short one now. Yeah, it is a short one, Lenny. Um, but I want people to realize that when you live in this life, bro, however short or long it may be or, or appear, enjoy it. Enjoy it. If going into a garden, looking at flowers gives you peace, always have that moment of peace. Always go get it. Never allow things around you to stop you from having whatever gives you peace. If sitting on the couch rubbing your dog or your cat gives you peace, cut off the phone and give yourself those moments. That will keep you balanced and that will keep you here. We get engulfed in this world too much. You know, I know. I don't want to preach. I don't want to preach. But that's, that's what right. you do. What are you talking about? That's what you do. You do that on every record. Yeah, I know. That, that's what I am. And you're a preacher. That's fine. You know, we're hearing it from the man himself. You know, and of course, where does this take you on the road of house music with you getting that big break that becomes that big hit for you? As the okay. singer, not the writer, the singer. The singer. Okay, so basically, uh, I had got married um, at a young age. I got married in 1995 to a sweet, beautiful girl. Um, but once again, I was in that phase of not knowing myself, right? So I was married to her, but I was neglecting the marriage because of... Uh, not cheating, but neglecting just the time and trying to get a re regular job to make money because of my obsession for wanting to become uh, a popular or important in something. Still chasing the popularity and importance, right? Even in my marriage, right? And finally, I remember telling my wife, because we were over my brother's house. This story is crazy. We was at my brother's house in the suburbs. And I remember we drove over there with hardly any gas. We had about two gallons left. And so I asked my brother for some money to help us. And he went to the back room. And I remember sitting up there with my wife and she said, we look pitiful. She said that to me. We look pitiful. And I remember walking out on this balcony. And when I tell you, Lenny, I sobbed for like 10 minutes. Big crying. Like, you know, the snot ran out your nose crying. You know, I was like, ugh, going. I wiped everything up. I walked back out. I said, baby, let's go. We're going. She said, what? But he didn't give me nothing. Left. I said, let's go. We'll make it. We'll make it. We found some change uh, in the car. You know, gas wasn't that bad then. So we found about $4 and change. We put it in the car and we drove home. And I remember that day 
I said, I'm done with the music business. I'll never do it again. I'm going to get a regular job. I'm going to take care of my wife. I'm not, not going to neglect you anymore. And that's it. Now, my friend Mozzie, they call him Audio Soul Project. We worked at a label together called After Hours Records. And he told me, he says, hey, Ron, a friend of mine in France sent me a demo, and they want you to write the song for Barry White. I said, Barry White? Big Barry? I said, yeah, Barry White. It's all right. So I went into my studio room, and I was like, every night you look up in the sky, babe, there's a light shining in the darkness. Right? Started writing that. I want to be your lucky star. Right? Boom. Wrote it. Did the little demo. And at the time, remember, I told my wife I'm done. Right? So my care for the industry wasn't there. I just went, wrote it. I'm like, here, bro, because I was packing my stuff. Here, bro, here's a demo. Here, whatever. Let me know. What, you, know. you got my number. Went home. Okay. About a couple of weeks went by. He said, hey, Ron, the guys heard the demo. They like it. I said, okay, cool. That was it. Didn't care. Uh, fine. Another week went by. They want to keep your voice on the record. I said, I don't care. Whatever. Still didn't care. I'm like, whatever. They want to keep the voice, whatever. Then another week went by. Hey, Ron, they coming to Chicago. They want to shoot a video. I said, okay, whatever. Let me right, know when they get here. You're still saying whatever. You're still saying whatever. I'm still saying whatever. And just let me know when they get here. All right, cool. Well, so they get wait, there. Wait, wait, hang on, hang on. Yeah. What job are you looking for? Like, what are you going to go do now? Because you've been in the music industry most of your life. So what yeah. are you going to do? This is what I've been waiting to hear. What, what job are you trying to figure out you're going to get? At the time, At the I was time. doing... I was doing bar backing and I was, you know, busting tables at a restaurant. Really? Yeah. That's some real talk, people. Write that down. You hear that's realness right there. Yeah. Wow. And that's what I was doing. So that, that my focus was that, you know, and that my focus was making sure that my wife and I did not struggle. I didn't care about nothing else but that, you know, because to me, I put her through enough, you know, I just didn't want to struggle. So he said, oh, Ron, the guys are in town. They want to meet you. I said, well, you got to wait till I get off work. I said, okay. We're at the, the Daisy Inn Hotel up north. I said, okay, cool. So I met them. They was like, yeah, the song is great. Um, they want to us to shoot a video. You know, here's the video uh, outlet. Now, at the time, I'm broke, bro. I'm, I'm looking at how they want to shoot it. I got these clothes, like not fit for a video. They said, well, these guys are taking shopping there, buying some clothes. I said, all right, cool. Buy me an outfit for the video. We plan to shoot. The super funk guys came in town. I met them. I shot my scenes. And every day that I would shoot, I would go right back to work. I would shoot scenes, go back to work. Go to work, come shoot scenes, go back to work. So shot it. I'm like, okay, 
I remember the last day they tried to hug me and, you know, say congratulations. I was like, all right, I'm out. Thanks. Good, you know, good, good luck with the record. You know, take care, brush your hair. And right, <laughs> I don't want to know nothing about it right now. Right, I don't want to know nothing about it. the industry and I are not friends. Good, have a good one. And they got in touch with Mozzie again. Now, did he, and did Mozzie do paperwork for you? Because I, I didn't hear about that part, like, like any kind of contract. Oh, well, I'm about to get to it. I'm about oh, to get to it, bro. I'm, here oh. going, I'm going, you're really laxed about because you're angry. It's like a bad, it's like a bad relationship. You yes. want out. I get it. I, I want out, bro. And so I'm sitting here and I'm like, okay. Okay. All right, I'm done with that. Back to work I go. Back to taking care of my family. Then all of a sudden, Mazi says, hey, Ron, it's getting kind of serious. I'm like, what do you mean? He said, because they want to fly you to France. And I'm like, what? Bro, I got to work. I, I, I got to work. I can't go to France, bro. You know, I can't. What? They want to fly. I said, man, you know, it is what it is. Just put the song out. Get it over with. You know what I mean? No, no, I'm telling you. They want to speak to you. So they call me. Yes, Ron. Uh, we think the record's going to be big. Uh, so we need you to come to France to do promo. I said, man, I have a wife to take care of. I'm not about to leave her. No, we'll make sure your wife is good. We'll make sure. I'm like, <sighs> I said, well, just send me the ticket. Let's see. And at the time, you know, they mailed the tickets to you, Lenny. They mailed them to your house. The only thing that changed my mind of knowing how serious it was when the tickets came in and they were first class tickets, not business, first class ticket. I said, they just sent me first class ticket. They only had money for me to go, not my wife. They said, oh, you'll be here for a little short time. That's it. I said, baby, do you want me to go? She said, baby, go. Please go. Please go. Please go. I said, all right, cool. I'm going to go. Boarded the flight. Didn't have no good clothes. Just boarded the flight. Flew there. Then all of a sudden, a Mercedes Benz picks me up. I'm like, a Mercedes? So you fly me first class. A Mercedes Benz with a driver is holding up the card at the airport. I said, what's going on here? The guy says, we're going straight over to the label. I said, okay. So now, Lenny, we get to the label. And out walks this little older lady named Maya. So sweet. She's the one who signed Daft Punk. Okay. I didn't know that till later. She walks out. So you're Ron. I said, yes, I'm Ron. Welcome, Ron. Come in. We got to talk. So it went in. She sat there and says, okay. The song is getting popular, Ron. It's getting really popular. Um, we want you to do some promo while you're here. 
I said, okay. How am I going to do it? I said, I don't have any clothes, really. No, no, we'll take care of that. We'll make sure you look okay. But we need you to do some promos of the song. Okay, no problem. Are you going to go walk to our publisher? which is around, you know, around the corner. And this is Virgin Records, okay, at the time, Virgin. We're going to send you to our publisher. Now, Lenny, I get to the publisher. It's, it's a guy that looks like Igor, you know what I mean? Sitting at the desk with this big, thick paper in front of him, right? Hello. Vos- <laughs> Are you at home? Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's like... Welcome, Ron. He says, so he says, so now I want to explain. We haven't done a contract on the record. We have to do one. Yeah, because, uh, I'm still waiting for this contract. Where the hell is this coming? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sitting here going, I've done enough record deals in my life. I'm going, they're already promoting the record. You're not- <laughs> you can turn around and say, hold on, I ain't doing nothing now. Go ahead. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. But he's like, we have to do a contract. And I'm looking at this paper in front of him. And it's thick, bro. And I'm like, I'm not about to sign that. But now at home, I'm about $4,000 in debt. Right? The guy says, "Uh, hey, Ryan, we're going to give you a $10,000 advance. And then we're going to work out the points and blah, blah, blah. I said, I have to make a phone call. I called my wife. I said, hey. She says, oh, you made it. I said, yeah. I didn't make everybody. I'm in the publishing office. And I said, they want to give me $10,000. Now, of course, she's like, take it, take it, take it. And I'm sitting there like, baby, no. I feel weird about this. The paper is really thick. You know what I mean? I would have to sign every line without reading it, and I don't want to do that. She says, but I'm over here suffering. And when she said that, bro. Oh, Cindy. Oh, man. Ay, ay, ay. Your heart must have went to your stomach at that moment. It did, bro. It dropped. It dropped. I know her. I know his. Oh, I, I, I know how she spoke. I can hear her voice too saying it. Oh. Yeah. And when she said that, man, I was like, oh, well, let's sign it. <laughs> yeah, let's go. All right. Go. All right. Come on. What the hell did you sign exactly? So you can explain to the audience. What did Okay. You- so just to let you all know, the track I'm talking about is Lucky Star with Super Funk. I signed a contract. That basically waived all royalties for that $10,000. Oh, man. Oh, man. And that they they owned my image and likeness. They were my management and everything. Yeah. For about, you know, 10 years. What year was that, Ron? Please give them the year. 1999. 
Everybody, you heard that. You heard what he said, right? In 1999, this is pre-streaming. Yep. Pre-everything, we were still working in physical business with vinyl CDs and cassettes. Yep. He signed over his likeness, which means they own Ron Carroll's name. Yep. They also, how much is the percentage of all the gigs you had to give? Because I know you had a lot of work at that time. 25%. Not the standard 15. Now he's giving 25% to Igor. Yep. And what else did you give up? Um, let's see. Let me remember. The music composition. I mean, I'm sorry. The, uh, oh, yeah. the melody and the, and the, the, the mechanical and the publishing yeah. too? Everything? Yeah. Yep. All for that 10 grand. Yep. What about your song? When normally we keep our songwriters. Even if you sign, even if you made a mistake. Were you yes. Able- well, you know, they, they have a law in France that protects oh. people from third party. But I didn't find that out until later on when one of the members of Superfunk met with me and apologized to me. Oh, my yeah. God. Whoa, dude, this is this is deep. I didn't know. I, I had no idea that you signed over everything to them. For and the once again, year. I didn't want to sign it, Lenny. No, I heard but you. When, I heard you. You, you know what I'm saying? But when but you're married. Hard. Yeah. But it was a good thing, too, because. Sure. There's a positive, too. Come on, everybody. We're all crying. We're getting on that with tissues out of the <laughs> We're all clearing our eyes. We want to clear off all that tears. And let's talk about the positive thing that also the rainbow that came out of it. For sure. Tell us the positive. You gave us the darkness. Now give us the yes. light. What was the light for? Now the, the light of it was is that it introduced me to the world. And I was able to travel the world over uh, promoting that record doing live shows in front of 10, 20, 50,000 people. Uh, Nobody knows that back I, here in America. I started trying to tell everybody, they don't know about that here. Over yeah, there, yeah. you were a sensation. We used to joke yeah. about that with you. Remember, yeah, I used to get yeah. a flag. I used to get down on my knees and go like this to you. I don't know. If yeah. you know I, would, I, would, I would be like, yo, lucky star, baby. <laughs> Remember, I used to tell you when I saw you in Europe. Remember, yeah. We all be going with our planes and stuff around town. Yeah, yeah. And so it was beautiful because I'm a person that likes, I like to create relationships. So every promoter, every agent that I met, I created my own relationship with them. So once the super funk thing ended, and it went on its way. I was still able to survive and work. Because when they dropped me, they dropped me. It was like one email. We're done with you now. Thanks. Bye. It was very, very quick and swift. How emotional, right? How nice of them. Take care. Yeah. Take care. Take care, buddy. We've had enough. You know. <laughs> we're done with you now. Yeah, we're done. Don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. Exactly, bro. Exactly, bro. But it's 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 
seeing the things around the world, any going to the festivals, playing these clubs, going to Ibiza, going to Mykonos, seeing all these things, man, it's what gave me the drive. I said, I can continue to do this. And that's when I linked up with Hard Soul in Amsterdam, and we did back together. And see, I had what I had what you call sectional hit records, okay? Like you, Lenny, you did one that was global, right? You had that global phenom. Mine was in like sections, like yeah, I did a record. Like regionals, we, like this way back in the day, we moved like like United States, like like the East Coast area, and yours was yeah. countries per country. I remember. Yeah, so we, so I was a regional guy. So Lucky Star was big in France and all of the yeah, French but, oh, speaking places. Dude, that was enough work just from them alone to keep you busy for a while. Yeah, for sure. And through that, other people wanted me to sing for them. That's so right. when I did Back Together, that record was big in England. Right, right. And then after that, and here's the part that's funny. I had a, a manager named Cleveland Anderson. Oh, I know Cleveland. <laughs> you know Cleve. Oh, so yeah. So Cleveland and I, you know, are you? Uh oh, hold on. Yes. If you want to come in? I'm going to have the doctor come in here and explain something. Do you want to come in? Okay. T- see, now, Lenny, they're trying to call me into the room with my dad. Give me two minutes. I'm going to finish. Okay. Okay. Thank you, love. So Everybody, we're, what happened? We're gonna- Ron's dad's room in a minute to check out with the tacos, though. We're joking, but <laughs> we're going to end this very quickly now, but he's... Go ahead. Finish So, so what happened was <clears throat> we, we did Back Together and he wanted me to work on a project that was all like love songs, love anthems. And so I did it, but he never did anything with the project. And I was like, man, I just wasted all this studio money on this stuff and you didn't do nothing. I said, man, I'm not singing love songs no more. I said, I'm going to sing about something else. I went home to the studio. I looked at a pair of Air Force Ones on the ground. I said, I'm going to make a song about these shoes. Lo and behold, I'm walking down the street with my Nike soul. Everybody's in the soul. That's when that came about. Woo! I did that because I was frustrated with that's what happens. Great things come out of negative things sometimes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm an artist. I'm doing an interview. Uh, and I know it's all tied in together. I understand my love. And so, yeah, guys. So I, I did the Nike song from that. And uh, hold on, guys. We're going to see what's going on. Is my dad blind? Is it what? Well, I see you, Dad. So, Hold on, guys. We're about to get the scoop. Okay. So, the, what I'm telling your dad, and this is okay if I share this with him, right? It's okay if I talk to him? This is where we're going to get the inside scoop what's going on now. Hang on, everybody. Ron has broke down, you think you have full control and you learn you don't really have control of anything. Others are controlling your destiny. You put your, you put your 
cards or should I say your eggs in their basket, hoping that everyone's going to do the right thing. And a lot of times this is that Motown story of the Cadillac story, you know, here, sign here, get your, here's your keys. And what happens is you hear about this from artists many times where we had last week where we were talking about this and exactly it was said the same way. These artists years later are broke and the people in the audience have more money than the actual artists that made those massive hits. They can't even afford to have be up on the stage. So, you know, you have to ask yourself major questions sometimes. You get to the, what I call is two doors. Two doors. The door of yes and no. Yes, I go through this door. Is it the right for me at this time? Or no. And a lot of times regret. You didn't go through the yes door. But the no door is even worse than the yes door. And the yes door over time can be a backfiring experience. It's terrible. All I can say is sometimes you just got to go with rolling the dice. And sometimes, or many times, we've all made decisions where we went against our gut. And the gut experience is better than the ego in the brain a lot of times. When you all get those butterflies in your stomach going, oh, man, it's saying, don't do it. Don't do it. And you go, your brain's like, yeah, but you need to do it because you got control of this. Oh, Lord. You later find out you don't have control. You don't have control. Okay, I have everything printed up. Okay. I'm ready, ready to go. All right, so cool. Carol, it was a pleasure to see you. Know I'm saying? So Ronald's going to come back, but I'm glad I was able to give you an inside, inside scoop of what's going on. I know he's talking to his father's doctors and he's being the best son he can be, being a caretaker to his dad. But see, his story is the kind of real stories of why we do True House Stories. This is why we do True House Stories. We want to thank Ron for you know spending his time with us. Live simulcast from the hospital. Hope he's okay. I hope his dad's all right. Okay. I hope he's hey, Lenny, right. are you there, buddy? Yeah, well, I was just giving... I, I muted you out so you could have that moment talking to the doctors. Nobody heard that. And I gave them some insight of why those two doors come up in our lives. The yes door and the no door. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. you were right at that moment. When she said to you, we're, we're suffering. <laughs> Ron, For sure. Ron, what, what you going to, and I know she, I know how she spoke. Cause I know we all knew each other. very. Mm-hmm. She probably said, what are you, what you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. you going to do? And what'd you say? I'm going to sign. And everybody in the movies, yo, Ron. Everybody in the movies watching the movies, going, Ron, don't sign, don't. Because you be the first one yelling. That's like Apollo Creed. Yo, man, don't fight the Russian dude. You're gonna die. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely, absolutely, bro. Um, Yeah, but my dad, you know, he cool. He just, you know, he's 92 years old. 
Bless. And uh, he, you know, he's having a problem with the sight, but that's because, uh, you know, he has that glaucoma, you know, build up. You know what I'm saying? So we just got to take care of that and, you know, take care. He's 92 years old, man, almost 100. I just told Thank him, you. I was telling him, I was telling you, trying to okay, be the my... best son you could be. Okay, love. Mm-hmm. So it's all good. Um, so basically, y'all, everybody listening, basically, you know, my story is, is about not only the fight for loving the music, but it's also a personal fight. You know, we all go through it. And a lot of times those two things go together. Your personal fight affects your music life. It affects everything. And I've just been a guy that tries to find a way out of no way. Even during the pandemic, bro, um, I want to tell this to you as well, because I've become very into doing my own productions, my own brands, my own production, party productions and events. And when the world got shut down, I said, it's not going to stop me from expressing myself musically. And I remember we started the backyard party in our backyard called The Happy Place. And people that weren't afraid to come out came out. And that became a church on Sunday where people can listen to music and fellowship, bro, during that situation. And so you always got to find a way. People got to find a way. Lenny does the same. Lenny has his situation. He finds a way, you know, and because the love in you, the drive that's in you, uh, it just, the way it comes to you. It just, it comes into your head. you like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go for it. I think this True House Stories thing is magnificent. Um, and how it's blossomed. And I'm so happy that you had me on here because I would watch a lot of them. And I said, and my boy asked me, I remember my boy asked me, is Lenny going to do you? I said, let me tell you something. I've been knowing Lenny forever. I said, that's my brother, regardless if he asked me or not. That's my brother. You know what I mean? So if he comes around to it, absolutely I'll do it. You know what I mean? So I'm very happy that you've had me. And I'm going to tell you right now, Lenny, we're going to probably have to do a part two because it's a lot of Chicago house stories. Hold on. Dad talking. Hold on. Let's listen to it. Is that 4 o'clock? Yeah, she wants she want to clean up that because she's got to have operation tomorrow. Okay. And she wants to come by the evening. At four, so you need to get home before 4? I thought I'd be home at 4 o'clock. Okay. Well, I'll call Nick. Call next time, tell her call now, tell her to go to the house. We're going home, right? Okay, yeah, we're going home. Yeah, tell her to go and wait in front of the house. Okay, well, I'm doing an interview. Can you call Nate? Seven, huh? Can you call Nate? I am calling. Can you call him? I ain't called nobody. Oh, and look at him. See, Dan said, I ain't called nobody. you going to call. <laughs> you ain't calling. I ain't calling nobody. What's this? That's your, that's your, uh, your medical stuff right there. Bro, okay? we're gonna leave you. We're gonna leave you here. We're gonna thank you for coming on to True House Story. Man, thank you, man. We can't thank you enough, Ron. We love you, bro. Love you as well, Lenny. And you coming to Chicago, Lenny, to beat that box? We got to get that date ready. You coming to beat it, bro? We gotta have that moment. I'm coming. We gotta back. have that moment. I'm all up in the Chicago, but I'm coming. I'm coming back. Oh, yeah. 
All right, Ron, listen, take care of yourself. Be well. You too, brother. Part two, and thank you. I just want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts all around the world. Thank you. And we will catch you soon, okay? All right, my Have a good one. Next week, everybody, we got Jens Lazat from Germany. Jens Lazat is coming on to tell the German story. This guy goes from disco into house, the electronic scene, and back again to disco. Played one of the greatest clubs in Germany. Jens Lazat for everyone next week, right here on True House Stories. Once again, I am Lenny Fontana, and I'm signing off. And Ron Carroll really gave it to us. I got to say, in a recap, what a great, great, real interview. And those that know Ron know he's a real brother. Right here from the... from the. <laughs> I want to laugh because some of the things I can't believe that we deal with in life. And to hear just him tell you that he signed a contract Sight unseen says it all. Good night, everyone. Thank you again for tuning in to True House Stories. Peace.